few more moments of that. And again, I hope um, you're feeling okay this morning. You're feeling rested. It, it is, uh, it is, you know, it's it's low hanging fruit. I know to kind of make the jokes about daylight savings time. It is it is just easy picking to go after that. But this literally, I. I I'd put this Sunday up there with the, the fatigue I sometimes feel at the end of Holy Week, uh, you know, and, and, and Easter because, you know, it's just hard to get adjusted. I have offered special pastoral blessings on any of you that can figure out a way to make this time change stuff stop, and nobody has risen up to that challenge yet. Uh, but but hope you're feeling, we, we try to trick our, ourselves on the weekends at the time changes because like you, you know, we're, we're in church on Sunday morning and Tony and I and the kids are up early. So we try to change our clocks during the day on Saturday, you know, move them up. So we'll start thinking about in the, in the new paradigm. But the problem is so many of our clocks now are digital and, and they're connected, you know, to the cloud or to the web. So you, you just kind of are stuck with it. So I thought I'd be smart and I went to bed at nine o'clock last night. Nine o'clock, went to bed, forgot to get a good night's rest. I kid you not, three hours later, I was just sitting there, just staring. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was talking to Tony. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I, I don't know what it is. Normally, I don't have a problem falling asleep, but I think it's any, anytime you're trying you know, you're, you want to fall asleep. You just can't do it. And I just kept thinking about how much sleep I wasn't getting and how fast 5 a.m. was going to come. Um, but, but you know what? I know. Poor me. Little pity party. I'll survive. I'll survive. Um, I know. I know. I feel it. I feel the love. Thank you. So, uh, but I do. I am glad. I, I will admit to you, I like this time of the year better. I like later later, longer days, and, and, you know, I don't mind the darkness in the morning, but I like it lasting a little bit. So, anyway, let's get to important things this morning. Let's, let's turn to our scripture. We're reading uh, from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and I just invite you to begin, as we always do, to hear these words written by Paul, but inspired by God. Hear and let us together hear from God's word this morning. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. I mean, you hear Paul's words. I mean, he's right at it. Those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regarding the law a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ 
Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Friends, sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that that would be the call and the passion of our hearts to know Christ. Be known to us in these moments as we worship together. As we hear your word, speak, Holy Spirit, speak. We pray in Jesus. Amen. I think I was about 15 years old. To the best of my recollection, I was, I was 15. It was in that age, you know, 15, 16. The further I get away from it, the harder it is to remember. Um, but it was my sophomore year of high school. And it was in the fall. I had just finished... Uh, the junior varsity football season. I played junior varsity football that year, and at the end of that season, which was a shorter season, I got moved to the varsity squad. So, and a number of us from the JV team got moved up to varsity to finish the season there. Uh, we were basically brought up to be glorified tackling dummies. That's kind of what our call was, and uh, and to get a taste of of <coughs> playing on the varsity. And it was it was an it was a thrill to be a part of that and. And also to be part of the team with a bunch of, of upperclassmen, particularly the seniors, a few juniors, that many of us had looked up to. You know, as, as athletes tend to do, or, or in, in any walk of life, you, you tend to look up to that kind of generation, whatever generation means that's, that's ahead of you. And it was a, a Thursday afternoon. We had just finished practice. I know it was a Thursday afternoon because we had practiced on the game field, and we were in shorts and T-shirts, and we just had worn our helmets. We were doing walkthroughs. And I was walking back across campus to the locker room. And as I walked in front of the gym, I walked by this wall. We had this wall in front of our gym that had been placed because the gym was kind of built up on a hill. And so they built this kind of retention wall to, to hold the earth in place because they'd built a, there was kind of a cement courtyard out in front of the gym. And so this wall was built to hold everything where it should be. But you could kind of hide behind the wall from where people couldn't see you coming the other direction. And as I walked by, I looked over, and there were a bunch of the, the senior football players, a few of the, the juniors, I'm sure, and they called me over. And they said, Chris, look, we're waiting for, and I'm going to make up a name here, but we're waiting for Steve. We're going to jump Steve. Um, Steve was a, a classmate of mine, had played on the junior varsity, had moved up like, like I had, and he had kind of gotten under the skin of some of the upperclassmen. So they were going to... Um, they were going to give him his comeuppance. They were going to kind of haze him a little bit, initiate him, if you will. The plan was, as they explained to me, when he came, they were going to grab him. They were going to throw him down. They were going to rip off his shirt and, you know, other parts of, of what he was wearing. And, and just kind of, honestly, they were just going to kind of embarrass him a little bit. And, and I will tell you, there are there two things that, that went through my mind as I stood there listening to this. One, I'm glad it's not me. I'm being honest. I'm glad it wasn't me that was the target. But I was caught in, in this moment of great tension because what they were doing is they were inviting me to participate. They were inviting me to be a part of this. And I knew this was not something I needed to be a part of. I knew this was not something that I needed to have a hand in because regardless of the, I, I had enough of a moral compass as a 15-year-old to know that embarrassing a teammate was not uh, a high and holy calling, if you will. But I wanted to fit in. But I wanted to fit in. 
I wanted them to think I was part of the team, I was cool, I was all those things you want to be when you're 15 years old or 16 or 17. And so I stayed and I waited with them. I can remember just being caught in this tension, knowing there was no way I could be a part of this, but not wanting them to know that. So when he came by, they jumped out and they ambushed him. And I stood there and I watched. I didn't participate, but I watched. And it was exactly what I expected to be. They embarrassed him. And I can remember walking and walk back the rest of the way to the locker room with his head down. And I always have wondered, why did I stand there? Why did I even pretend to be a part of it? As I said, I didn't jump out. I didn't do anything. But don't hear me patting myself on the back because I was guilty by association. Because in that moment, my desire to fit in overrode my desire to be faithful, to to be who I knew I'd been called. But could I have stopped it? Probably not. There probably isn't much I could have done other than maybe let him know it was coming. But I know I didn't try. It's very, very dangerous for us when our desire to fit in becomes our primary objective. And that's what happened to me. My desire to fit in became my primary objective. And that can have even more devastating consequences. I can tell you, and and Dad can tell you the story even as well, of a friend of my youngest brother, David, who's five years younger than I am, who he grew up playing football with and who played on our ball fields as kids and and, um, who we spent a lot of time around, who has spent every year of his life since his 18th year in prison because of his desire to fit in, because he couldn't walk away from a group of friends when they decided to do some unspeakable um, crimes. He didn't participate, but he was there. And he couldn't walk away. Now, these are extreme cases. Both of these are extreme. Our desire to fit in usually doesn't have such ugly, such an ugly side. It can. But but I, 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 I heighten the tension there to illustrate how dangerous it can be for us when the desire to fit in becomes our primary objective. The reality is we all want to fit in. I wish it was something we outgrew. I wish it was something that only affected us in our, in our teenage years or our adolescence. And I know that I'm not speaking to everybody because there's some of you out there who have had that strong sense of self-identity that fitting in has never been your primary objective. But for a lot of us, that desire, at least that tension, never goes away. Whether it be manifest in our workplaces, in our churches, in the communities we live, it's that desire to kind of be one of the gang. And inherently, it isn't wrong, but misplaced, it can be very, very dangerous. We want to fit in. In fact, it was about a decade ago that, um, and I don't know how many of you watched the show, The Apprentice, over the years, but Martha Stewart took over as the kind of the head honcho of The Apprentice. And at the end of the show, and when the candidates, when somebody would be dismissed, you know, it was that reality show and it would whittle down to an eventual winner. But when she'd gather the people together and tell one of them basically they were, they were let go, they were no longer in the show, the words she would use as she looked at them, she would say, you just don't fit in. That were her words of dismissal. You just don't fit in. I don't think any of us would not be somewhat pained to hear those words, that it wouldn't 
speak deeply and maybe even wound us a little bit. Maybe you have. Maybe you've heard those words. Paul would not have been someone that would have been accustomed to hearing those words, at least not in the first half of his life, maybe not in part A of his life. And that's the part of his life that he talks about in Philippians chapter 3, at least that he references. That time in his life when he fit in better than just about anybody, when he fit in to the ideals and the standards and the, 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 the character of what was most respected in the community for which he lived. Paul says in his not-so-subtle ways to the church as he writes that if you are putting your confidence in the things that you have done, the things you have attained, the things you own, he talks about putting your confidence in the flesh. He says, if you're doing that, trust me, you can't do it better than I can. Paul engages in a little bit of um, that that game, whatever you can do, I can do better. That's, that was Paul saying. I have every reason to boast upon how well I fit into the standards and expectations of the community which I was born. I want you to hear again what he says. It picks up at verse, um, at the end of verse 4, beginning into verse 5. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. What's he saying? He's saying, since the time I was born, I've been faithful. I've been about doing the things my parents were about, making sure that I was initiated and brought into the faithful um, expression of, of being what, of Jewish, of being Jewish of the day. So I started out on the track of being faithful. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, I'm one of the chosen people. But not only that, he says, but of the tribe of of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin. What he's saying is, I'm not only one of the chosen people, I'm one of the tribes that has royal lineage. Because you know who else was from the tribe of Benjamin? The first king of Israel, Saul. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, it didn't end well for Saul, but the tribe of Benjamin was a tribe with, with rich history, with royal history. So he's basically saying, not only am I Jewish, not only am I people of Israel, I'm one of the special tribes. I'm, I'm somebody. It goes on to say, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Now that's where we have to stop for a minute because we hear that through the lens of the Gospels. And we hear that through the lens of, of almost derision. When somebody, if, if I was to say to anybody here today, if you know the scriptures well, and I was to say, you are a Pharisee, that should offend you. Because I would be being highly critical of, of, um, of your legalism, of your, of your rigidness, of some of the very th- same things that Jesus pushed against when he had issues with some who were Pharisees. But what you've got to remember is Pharisees were deeply respected men in the community. And I say men intentionally because they were men. They were educated. They were trained in the law. They were teachers. They had an important role in the community of faith. And they weren't all bad. See, we tend to think sometimes that Pharisees means bad. Jesus had his issues with some Pharisees. And Pharisees could go too far. And he certainly believed they had misunderstood the intent of the law. But being a Pharisee, Man, man, you were respected. You had achieved something. 
So he says, I was a Pharisee. I was a teacher. I was educated. I was schooled. I was the kind of person you came to for answers. Keep in mind, Paul's not always very humble. Just He's just not. And, you know, Paul's not perfect either, and he could be a little confident in himself. He says, that was me. I was a Pharisee. And he said, I was so committed to the faith. I was so passionate about faithfulness and obedience that I persecuted the church. If you were out of line, if you were out of step, if you threatened the faith, I was coming after you. Paul says, these are all the things about who I was. These are the things that mattered. These are the things that made me somebody that was respected and that fit in well in the community to which I had been born. In fact, if, if he could say it in the terminology that I used for the sermon title, if the hole was round, Paul was round. He fit perfectly. He fit in ideally. His life was on a solid foundation as he knew it, and it was secure, and in many ways it was safe. And then Jesus happened. And then God, in God's way, turned his life upside down and reoriented his way of seeing and his way of thinking. Jesus basically took everything that Paul knew and he just flipped it upside down. And he tore it down like a house of cards. And in a moment, in a powerful moment on a Damascus road, when a persecuting Paul gets called to become a disciple, or a persecuting Saul, really, is called to become the disciple Paul. His life changes, but his stability and his safety net was ripped right out from underneath him. And I don't believe from that moment on Paul ever had a predictable day the rest of his life. Everything changed. I remember it was probably, the, I think it was the second month Tony and I had been married. We were married in May of 1995. And in June that summer... We were home one night. Uh, we had, I was serving as the youth pastor at First United Methodist Church of Haines City. What well, was then First United Methodist Church of Haines City is now called New Horizons. But they had an old parsonage that was on an adjacent property. And when I say old parsonage, I mean basically built about the time of electricity old. I mean, it was... I don't want to say dilapidated. That's not fair. But, um, you know, it was one of those houses that you could shake the whole thing, you know, with a stomp, one of those kind of things. It was built up. And, and I mean, it, it just, it was on its last legs. But I was 22. Tony was 21. We didn't have much to our name to begin with. It had a roof. It had running water. And it had electricity. So it was a palace for us. And we were thankful to have it. I mean, that's the way life is when you start out. It wouldn't, you know, at that point, it was, it, was, it was ours. It was our place of living. And so we were there, and we had settled in, and we're, you know, figuring out what it means, you know, to be married as, as can happen or does happen. My brother had come to visit, and so Brian's there with us. And it was a night in which a, I don't know if it was a tropical storm or it was a Category 1 hurricane, but it was hitting the panhandle. And you know that when storms hit the panhandle, the backside causes, you know, the, the feeder bands, and it causes sometimes tornadoes and things to pop up. Well, we're sitting there watching the news. All of a sudden, power goes out, and the house starts shaking. And Brian and I instantly, Tony was sitting on the recliner. We pulled her onto the floor, and we just covered, the both of us, just covered over the top of her. And in what seemed like five minutes that lasted, I'm sure, no more than 10 to 15 seconds. 
the house shook. A tornado came through Haines City right over our property, took the oak tree that was in the front yard and deposited it through the roof. One of the branches through the roof. The tree onto the roof, one of the branches through into our living room. I can remember when in the aftermath, laying there, and you could smell what smelled like sawdust from where the branch had come through, and it tore up our cars. But the only thing we had was our cars, and it tore them up. And I was on TV, no lie, I was on TV, I was on the news the next day describing the sound of the tornado as it came through. You don't get more redneck than being on TV <laughs> describing the sound of the tornado as it comes through. I wish I could. We've got an old VHS tape of it. I, if I could have digitized it, I would have shown it to you. But what had happened is that oak tree had come through the roof, the branch had come through the roof, and right through the roof above the chair where Tony had been sitting. It didn't come all the way through. I don't want to be too dramatic. It, would, you know, it didn't come all the way to the ground. It wasn't necessarily a situation... We know what would have happened had she been sitting there. We're thankful we didn't find out. But it's that night that I remember so vividly. Because in the aftermath, power's out. People are kind of coming out into the street to survey the damage. It was a relatively small tornado. As tornadoes go, a big tornado would have just taken the house with it. It was a relatively small tornado. But it did damage to a number of houses, including ours. Front door, screen ports, that kind of stuff. And I remember going to bed that night. We had a double bed. Um, and three of us slept on it, Tony, Brian, and I. <laughs> and I slept with a baseball bat because I didn't know what to expect. I was anxious because what had happened was in a moment, a place that had been a place of comfort and security, a place of safety for us, got flipped upside down. It wasn't that anymore. It would become that, but in that night, we didn't feel safe. We didn't secure that, that, that cocoon or that that. That, that bubble that, that kind of insulated and protected us, in our minds anyway, was, was burst. Now, I'm not equating that experience with what Paul experienced, but I think some of the feelings, though much deeper and much longer term, were the same. What Paul had known, his safety net, his security, his foundation, had been torn apart. And God began to rebuild him differently. And what God does God teaches him something, that he needs to fix his eyes not on the horizontal but on the vertical. See, the problem with looking to fit in is that it turns our attention to the horizontal, to the relationships as first and foremost, to the people around us. And it is a very rigid model. It says this is whatever your community, whatever your group is, whatever the model is, this is what it means to fit in. And our job becomes to mold our lives into that paradigm. But the problem is our first focus is on others and on those things around us. That's what Paul did. He followed the paradigm. He did all the things to be a good, faithful, respected, obedient Jew. And then he says, but when God turned my eyes to Jesus, all of that was garbage. I mean, that's strong. All of that is garbage. In fact, you know what the better translation of that word is? Dung. That's what he says. It's dung. I mean, Paul's not above a little hyperbole to make a point. It means nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Now, again, I think it's fair to say he's not saying, I don't believe Paul would say that those, 
pursuits and those accomplishments don't matter. But what he says is they don't matter most. They fall by the wayside because in a moment, his eyes went from vertical, I mean from horizontal to vertical. His eyes went to Christ and the sole pursuit of his life, the sole goal of his life, the sole objective of his being was to not fit in but to fit together with what God had called him to in Jesus Christ. To not fit a, a preconceived notion or a model, but to give his life to Jesus and to do whatever it was Jesus called him to do, no matter how outside the norm that may be. And the last day that Paul ever was a, a, a round hole in a round, or a round peg in a round hole was the day before he met Jesus. Because when Jesus got a hold of him, he didn't fit in anymore. He became that proverbial square peg in a round hole. It just didn't work. Because his objective wasn't to please others. It was to please Jesus. And his focus was on Jesus. And what he calls the church to, what he says to us is we have to remember first and foremost, he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 23, when he talks about the wisdom of the world, he says to God, it is foolishness. The things that we think matter to God are foolishness. He says primary is that you remember church. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. That becomes the primary pursuit of our heart. That becomes the primary objective of our lives. Not to fit in, but to fit together. And we lose sight of that. I lose sight of that, and you lose sight of that. And we even do it in the church. We believe our primary objective is to, to be good church people. To be good church people. Well, that's a secondary benefit of being a good follower of Jesus. A faithful follower of Jesus. But it can happen even to us in the church. When I came out of seminary, I talk a lot about my experiences as an associate in the years I served in Largo because I learned so much in those years. And, and I came out of seminary, and I got appointed to be an associate pastor. Let me tell you what my primary goal was. If you'd have asked me then, I would have told you. I want to be a good associate. I want to be a good associate. I respected the pastor that I was working under and still do. And I wanted to be a good associate. But sometimes being a good associate didn't necessarily make me the best follower of Jesus. And so I came out of seminary, and I was assigned some of the pastoral responsibilities that, that pastors have. I preached occasionally. I went to the hospital weekly. I, you know, would teach Bible studies or would do counseling as, as necessary. But I was also assigned some ministries, basically that were just given to me. You're the young associate. Here's your ministries. And one of those ministries was I was called, and Tony helped, to lead the singles group. Now, nothing wrong with singles ministry. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. Singles ministry can be wonderful. But in our church there, there were about 20, probably average of about 20 singles. They were all in their 40s or early 50s. And they were being led by a 25-year-old pastor who was married with a kid on the way. And do you see a disconnect there? <laughs> and they were great. And we got along well, but the ministry did not flourish. And in my later years, I would realize that if I had had the conviction of my heart, what I should have said respectfully to my senior pastor and to the team was, this is not the best way to use me following Jesus. This, this is a wonderful ministry, and I can help support it, but I'm not the one to lead it. But it was just handed to me, and I wanted to be a good associate, so I led it. And it languished for the years that I was there. It is not one of the feathers in my cap in ministry. 
because I was more concerned about being a good associate than I was focusing on the things Christ had called me to do. And I could have done that and still respected that ministry, and they probably would have been a lot better for it. Now, here's the power of the story. My learning was right next to my office was the other associate pastor, Reverend Bill Fritz. Bill was in his early 60s. He was on loan from Canada. That's where I learned to keep an eye on the Canadians. <laughs> Bill, Bill was a wonderful mender. And when Bill got to St. Paul, I'm sure they gave him a list of things they wanted him to do as well. But I don't think it really mattered because Bill was committed to following Jesus. And in his focus on Jesus, he saw a need in that community. I don't think it was a need he was called to the church to meet. I don't believe that was the intention when he came, but it became the signature ministry of his time there. And that need was to reach out and to minister to special needs adults and youth to reach out to young people and adults who very often are pushed to the margins because they don't fit the whole or the square or the whatever shape we want to use. They're outside, and that became his passion, following Jesus by loving them and creating ministry and place for them. And on a Friday night, on Friday nights, the handicapable ministry would meet, meet and there'd be as many people in those um, worship gatherings and fellowship meals as there's in this room. And I would go on occasion, and it was chaos. It was crazy. It was um, uncontrollable. It was unpredictable. Many of the handicapables would come, especially to our contemporary worship, and they would often sit on the front row, and they would not be as well-behaved as you guys are. <laughs> uh, and really, that's not the word. I shouldn't say behaved, because it wasn't misbehaving. They were just, they were happy to be there. They were, they were joyful, and they were excited, and they would talk to you, and they would move up and down. It didn't matter if you were preaching or not. We've had some of that here at the church where, you know, you just never quite knew what to expect. And the ministry flourished because Bill wanted to follow Jesus, and that's how he understood Jesus has called him. And that ministry today, though Bill has long since gone back to Canada, is still an impactful ministry. Still goes on, the handicapped ministry at St. Paul. In fact, it's one of their signature ministries. I got to see in Bill what God does when first and foremost we're about serving Jesus rather than fitting a preconceived model for who we're supposed to be and what life and ministry and faithfulness is supposed to look like. Sometimes God calls us to become a square peg in a round hole. That's, that's what happened to Paul. He no longer fit, and he no longer cared. He just didn't, because the goal was to know Jesus. All of that stuff fell by the wayside. Our pursuits, our desire to fit in, to, to connect, there's nothing wrong with that until it becomes the most important thing, because that's not who we're called to be. The most important thing for us is Jesus, is to know Jesus. I know that if a 15-year-old kid had known that and lived that Jesus was the most important thing, he would never have stood there waiting to ambush a teammate. He just wouldn't have done it. But in that moment, I wanted to fit in more than I wanted to fit together. We're called to fit together for God. You are not called to make room in your life for God. Hear me say this. You are not called to make room in your life for God. You are called to understand God has made room in his kingdom for you. And you are called to connect to that, to fit together with what God is already doing and has invited you and me to be a part of. That should be first and foremost. 
And that sometimes will make us a square peg in a round hole. And so be it. Because all of those accomplishments fall by the wayside to the glory of knowing Christ. Make that, brothers and sisters, the focus. Make that be the number one goal of our hearts, even when it puts us out of sorts with the world around us. No one doesn't want to fit in. But the most important thing is with Christ that we would fit together. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are challenged in our call to fit in for Christ, fit in with, with what you're doing in the world. Speak to us, invite us into your work, and help us to respond in faithfulness to the, your call upon our lives. We pray it now and always in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.